0: Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. Today, we're focusing on discrimination. How does it influence our society and what should we do to move from acknowledging its existence to taking action? Research from the Diversity Council Australia found notable disparities in discrimination and harassment rates amongst various groups from our First Nations peoples to individuals with disabilities and the LGBTQIA community. A similar ABC News survey revealed that a significant 76% of Australians acknowledged the prevalence of racism, further solidifying the need for action. Addressing discrimination isn't just about redressing past and present wrongs, it's about ensuring a future where everyone can participate fully and fairly in contributing to a society where understanding and respect prevail. In this episode, our discussion centres around this complex issue, exploring ways we can actively challenge and overcome the fears that sit behind discrimination, fostering an inclusive society that celebrates diversity and champions equity. To help us unravel the complexities of discrimination, we're joined today by Dr. Mario Poika. A senior research fellow at Victoria University's Institute for Sustainable Industries and in Livable Cities, Mario is widely respected for his intricate analysis of radical political movements, community activism, and socio cultural inclusion exclusion dynamics in Europe and Australia. His notable exploration of the boundaries of radical political dissent, online and offline mobilisation of radical right movements, and the dynamics of far-right and radical-left interactions all add to our understanding of the underpinnings of discrimination. Besides his scholarly contributions, including five books and numerous peer-reviewed articles, Mario's impact extends to consultation roles with local and international organisations. Welcome to the podcast, Mario.
1: Oh, and yeah, thank you for having me
0: oh you're very welcome <laughs> and it's a delight to have a chat with you we often catch up from time to time so it's really nice to be able to do this on the podcast as well and let some pe- uh, some more people really understand the sort of work that you do um mario can you perhaps tell us a little bit first about the key challenges that you've observed in addressing discrimination in society
1: oh yeah well that's a, a big question already um <laughs> I think Take that it one, wherever you'd
0: like. <laughs> I, I
1: think one of the challenges where I would maybe start is that we all have very... It's, it's a topic many people don't want to talk about. So there are barriers. And often, I mean, I'm a I'm a white middle-aged man, so I've never experienced racism. Maybe I should say that at the very beginning. Um, many people from my peer or from my communities or people that I work with, they often assume that... um it's only tricky to talk about racism within white spaces because we talk about f- white fragility and white vulnerability and we have to acknowledge all these big mistakes and privilege and that's certainly not easy and c- uncomfortable sometimes but there's also af- often an assumption that it's easy for people who experience racism to talk about and that's by, by no means the case so it's really really hard emotionally the risks of re-traumatization, um, even knowing what racism really means uh, is also a tricky challenge for communities that are affected by racism. And when I come along as a white person and tell a, a group of, let's say, 50 Middle Eastern um, elderly um, asking that they've experienced racism, they say, no to me. <laughs> and it's a tricky one because I'm not in a position to urge them to think about Racism is something that they have experienced, but at the same time, I want them to be aware of the injustices that they might be facing in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Talking about racism is is not not easy, and even when you work with policymakers, local government, others, there's often a bit of a resistance to acknowledge the enormous challenges that that uh, still exist in that space.
0: Uh, absolutely, it is. Um Interesting though that we also don't talk about. Um, we assume that those people that are victims of discrimination aren't also necessarily uh, f- have have discriminatory feelings towards others within different communities as well. So it's it's a very complex set of conversations to have.
1: And on thin ice, so it yes. may be all Um, The words are important there, and we have to be very careful how and who says what. It's not just that I can say, well, because my my friend from whatever Eritrean background, he said this, that's why I can also use the same language. It's not quite like that. Mm -hmm. Positionality plays a very important role in this. And I have to, as a white person, acknowledge that I have to take sometimes and maybe often a, a backseat and listen more than talk. <laughs> um not doing the podcast today but um in, in community engagement i i have learned um to take a step back and you know tune down that what i describe sometimes as a bit of academic arrogance that we might all have in academia not all but many and be a bit more humble uh, and open to the to the experiences of those who face racism
0: it, it is one of those things that we really do want to encourage is that sense of respect and and a, a humbleness to listen to others and what their experiences are because they whatever their experiences are is their reality so we we certainly do have to acknowledge that and um, there has been in, in the last couple of years considerable consultation with victims of discrimination in the design of various governments' anti-racism strategies, as you would well know, um, which is absolutely very important. But I wonder if we could talk a little about the fears and intentions that drive the perpetrators. G- have you got some thoughts about what that is? And and I will, a, a follow-up question after this, we'll we'll sort of try to unpick the, the, the continuum of perpetrators but just initially what you might think about what are those fears and intentions perhaps
1: well i mean as as we said and everyone sort of knows that racism is very complex and we have to when we talk about these things we have to make sure we're talking we are talking about we acknowledge the complexity and then if we do that we also have to acknowledge the complexities of what sits behind it in the first of all acknowledging that racism is not only manifest in in behavior and attitudes, but also in systems and institutions. But that's that's a very important part. But let's leave that for that question aside. People have very different reasons. It's important to acknowledge that racism or discrimination doesn't always happen intentionally. So people are not always bad people with bad Mm -hmm.
0: intentions.
1: Sometimes it's just a lack of awareness. And I'm not saying that to sort of, Um, justify this um, but it is often even from people who are at the receiving end of racism, they often say "Well, often people simply don't know any better but it leads to forms like often microaggressions which is a term that I don't particularly like because micro sounds like it's not serious but it it is, can Mm -hmm. be very serious, but the intentions sometimes it's um, racism is, if it's intentional and on purpose uh, with purpose then sometimes it's out of insecurity um lack of awareness sometimes people have really deeply ingrained racist uh, views where people people who think that you know uh white cultures or western civilization or whatever that is is superior that's probably a minority that would explicitly say that but there's a deep um like century old um, notion that there's a, a western superiority we've have, we've have all cultivated that and we've all been part of that i mean when we look at media representation um you know the 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 the, the faces of our political leadership of economic leadership they are all they all reflect something so mm-hmm. um maybe in, in short sometimes it's intentional sometimes it's not sometimes it's um, with, um out Of ignorance, and sometimes it's deeply ingrained racist views, like in a narrow, more narrow definition, racist views.
0: Yeah. Perhaps we could talk a little bit more about those more casual interactions and, and how do we go about shifting those behaviors potentially?
1: So, I mean, there, there are sort of two main approaches to um, addressing those attitudinal forms and interpersonal forms of racism and discrimination. The f- first one is that we need to provide more information about the other uh, or the you know the, the the person who is affected by race or the community um that's relatively easy um you can do that you know can provide information the problem there is often that there's a self selective element to that that those who Go to certain programs or educational programs are usually the ones that need it the least Mm -hmm. Um, and those who have those um, racist views and attitudes they often they're harder to reach other except for schools where everyone sort of needs to be there which gives schools a particular prominence there Um, but apart from that information providing accurate information it's often the second um, element is bringing people together in certain Um, favorable circumstances where people don't necessarily compete against each other, but in a cooperative space where people are urged to work together, where people don't see the ethical or cultural or religious mark as a primary um, as Mm -hmm. a primary factor, but more um, how I work with someone else. And then you look beyond those Ethic Marcus, for example.
0: Yeah, I, I think yeah, that's a really looks, important yeah. point because from an evolutionary perspective, we all discriminate. There, there is a purpose to discrimination in a sense, um, not necessarily the, the sort of discrimination we might be talking about here, but there is inbuilt in built in us this ability to be able to say uh, this, you know, I'll move in this direction and not that direction or I'll avoid these and not those, that sort of thing. But at the same time, do you think there is... Um, perhaps more, too much of a focus on people's cultural identity where in actual fact, it's the issues that everybody is dealing with that mm. bring people together and that can enable us to actually work constructively together rather than creating them and us type situations.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. For I mean, you, it's, it's almost a bit like um, if we from now on start to be colorblind and just simply <laughs> ignore um, those um, categories... If we hadn't the legacy of racial division and injustices, that could probably work. But we have to address uh, the, those um, systemic disadvantages that have built intergenerationally and, and beyond. Uh, otherwise, it would be relatively not easy, but it would be easier at least. But we also, at the same time, have to address those um, the effects of centuries of um, injust- racial racialized injustices in a way. But at the same time, it, it, if we look beyond those categories in certain settings, it would probably help. And it, it does. I mean, when you work with someone, we um, should not treat that person in our daily interaction probably as something different. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's a sensitive thing because, I mean, I'm not the judge of, of that. But um, sometimes there could be a bit of an overestimation, but that, that judgment should come from those other communities if they think that there's too much of that.
0: Yes, yeah, that's very true. Now, um, how important do you think it is, because one of the things that you have had quite a bit of experience with over the last few years has been a project that you've been working on that really looks at that uh, support for people who are experiencing uh, discrimination. And um, in many respects, those particular victims have not been in a position, well, have either um, not reported that particular experience or if they reported it, they might do that with an assumption that nothing was going to happen anyway. So um, the projects that you've been working on, Mario, have helped to try to um, break down some of that. And at the same time, I think, uh, break down some of those systemic components that exist certainly at a local level is is um, what what? How important is it to have that, both community wide uh, program, but also a culturally sensitive one?
1: Well, I, I've I've come a, a long way with this with this kind of work program that has now been um, carried out across different municipalities. The, initially, we we were driven by the idea we have to address underreporting, mm-hmm. and we address underreporting by providing better support, that, it has changed a little bit over the years now that the more we've worked with communities, the more we realize that reporting is can is an important side effect. But then the focus needs to be, what do communities really want? What do they need after they experience mm-hmm. racism? And if reporting is part of this, and it seems to be an important element that people want to raise awareness, well, then we should make that easier. But ultimately, we should not think how we should increase reporting. We should ask what communities would like to see after they experience racism. And those services need to be established, driven by the needs of communities. And I think that's sort of a bit of a paradigm switch that we we all went through. Um, existing services don't... We can't expect comu- community members who face racism to navigate a really complex system of um, support services that are, that have been developed with good intentions, but ultimately in a top down way, we have to really rethink the whole system where the community needs define what what needs to be done and what services need to be established and that so that centers the community voices in not a not in a tokenistic way or in you know we often say community centered is important, but it fundamentally drives those support services and the provision mm-hmm. of support services.
0: You, you've done quite a lot of community consultations around this. Can you give us an example of um, what, what types of reactions or behaviours or um, responses people who uh, might go ahead and report discrimination, what, they're, what they would like to see?
1: Yeah, so I'm not even using consultations because it's so we we engage we try really to engage and take, as I said before, to take a step back and really listen. Mm-hmm. So we create environments uh, where people can openly talk about um what they would like to see. One thing that we noticed, for example, is that people well, the obvious thing is that people often feel like there's a sort of a sense of resignation or hopelessness, nothing's gonna change. Um but that's tricky because I mean we are not going to we can't promise that we are going to eliminate racism with these services. So I mean that's true but we we still argue that being silenced has an enormously bad effect on, on people's health and community cohesion and in many different on many other social uh, factors. So there is, for example the need that people don't are not being, Sort of cut out of the process. Once you complain, you don't, you want to maintain, that's what many people say, uh, you want to maintain in the loop. You want to see what, what happens to the, to the perpetrator, what happens, um, to the whole process. Mm-hmm. And many systems are not set up like this. When you go to the police to report a, um, an alleged crime, the police might investigate it, but there's very limited feedback. And that's for, for those who've reported, often worse than uh, the experience itself and they feel like they've lost control over over that um, process. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a big um, need for um, engaging and remaining connected with the person who reported, for example. That's, that's one of what, what many, I mean, we've, yes. we've found many different other things, but that's one of the...
0: Letting things. them know that they've been heard and that action's being taken. Yeah. Um, the, the, the work that you've done, though, has been very much at a local community level. So have you seen changes potentially within those local councils uh, where they've actually suddenly realised things, they've, they've got more um, agency in being able to respond than they thought they had?
1: So the, the local councils initially, those that we worked with, were very reluctant, um, at least initially, um, to take on racism. And that was in a, at a time when the the reckoning with racial injustices were not at the same level as where we are now. I think lots has changed during the COVID pandemic mm-hmm. and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement also in Australia. So there's a different set. And we see that in the Scanlon Foundation mapping um, a social cohesion study that the awareness that racism is an issue has gone up quite significantly, um, I think, from 40 to yeah. uh, 61 percent. But the, the, the more we work on anti-racism, the more we normalize the the necessity of working in anti-racism spaces, that we build anti-racism work. So we have come a long way. So the more we talk about it, the less intimidating the, the word racism becomes. And the, all those councils are now very, very um, committed to to doing more in that space. Uh, We have now recently um, been approached by many other local councils who said we would like to do anti-racism work, but we don't really know how to. And I think that's really a a good thing because we can then, if the council doesn't pretend they know, it's good because then we can argue that we should listen and have to listen to what their local communities want. Mm -hmm. So that's the starting point. So there's a a great awareness of the need for for more effective and tangible anti-racism work in local areas that goes beyond um, and I'm not discrediting that either it's part of its symbolic messaging that anti-racism is not welcoming these are important messages but there's an awareness that anti-racism has to go well beyond those symbolic messaging
0: yeah absolutely I think um, you're you're right that symbols make a huge difference people because they know where you stand on things. So uh, I think that's that's very important. Um, you you talked a little though about some of the progress that you've seen made, and clearly there's still um, a long way to go because you're not affecting every local council across Australia. But do you have a, um, a an optimism or a pessimism about how long you think this might take in the future to get Australia to a place where everybody actually feels more comfortable about their um how they're being treated
1: so on a, on a general level I would say that we are on a on a good on a on a good pathway um but the more we are on this progressive and pathway to to more racial justice and um re- reduction of racism the more we will also see a small segment of society where we see backlash and we <laughs> always have I think a democratic socially cohesive societies can live with that we have to navigate that we have to manage that there's always a a small group that might not like the progress that we are making we see that in many different ways Um, in those local areas and especially in victoria i think there's there's great um potential at the moment for for progress we we have the soon we will have an anti-racism strategy one part of that anti-racism strategy will be to support um People who have faced racism, um, that's exactly what we've been working towards. Mm-hmm. There's more uh, acknowledgement in local government areas. We are now doing a, um, a project working also with the Victorian Equal Opportunity Human Rights Commission and Victoria Police and others to um, make sure that the, the, our work, our community engagement work and research with communities across Victoria is, is um, resulting in real changes in in, in those areas. Um, Support structures that exist, and that we also have to face that if Victoria wants to have a, a, a better support anti-racism work, they also have to provide funding uh, for um, community organizations because mm-hmm. they have to be at the fore of of this work without putting the burden on them to fix racism. I think we always said that it's important that we, we we center their voices and their expertise, but that doesn't mean that they are sort of we can sort of push that into their Um, um, you know it's their responsibility to fix race and that's that's firmly a a societal responsibility where especially those who have privileged from previous structures have a particular role to play like myself and universities and many others.
0: Well you mentioned earlier the important role of schools um, that they're in a very unique situation. Can you talk a little bit about how you think schools can play a part in this because we certainly know that kids can be Very cruel, and as you go further through school, um, you know, into high school, it becomes very tribal and very competitive. What are the sorts of things you would like to see schools doing in order to try to reduce those experiences that some people might be having?
1: Yeah, schools are a big place where racism happens in all different directions between teachers, from teacher to students, from students, even from student to teacher, but obviously also between students. Mm -hmm. And it may be devastating, especially because it's such a. It needs to be. It needs to be a safe space, in particular. I mean, everywhere should be, but especially schools for young people. So I think there is a, um, you know, I was thinking about how many schools have. Um, anti-bullying programs or like there's some external experts come in and do workshops together with the either with the teachers or with the students or with all of them why wouldn't we not why would we not be able to have similar workshops on anti-racism and to make this a topic it's still a little bit um not by all but by many schools a bit something that you don't want to touch because mm-hmm. it looks bad and it, it I think it's mainly because principals and teachers don't really know they don't have the tools to respond and to deal with that so out of this uncertainty grows this uh, reluctance to deal with it so there to be more guidance there for principals i don't think that there are many principals in in victoria that are that don't want to see a a non-racist or anti-racist school but they need to have the tools and it's a complex
0: yeah, and, and the engagement then with parents is also a huge challenge, isn't it? Because even if all the, the children and all of the teachers are in the right place, it doesn't necessarily mean all the parents are in agreement either.
1: Yeah, it's uh, interesting because there are so many stakeholders involved in schools, and at the same time, school is a has also a legacy, and there are structures of you know the, what school curriculums look uh, the curriculums look like what what literature we use what books we use there's a lot in there that that can all play into this
0: yeah just a, a final question Mario because um, this is such a, a deep and uh, important conversation but I, d- I just wanted to touch on community organizations and communities in and of themselves they are um, there are many of them um, you know uh, and they are all evolving. Uh, in in different ways and their ability to take leadership roles in these spaces is increasing all the time do do you have a thought as to what you think we governments society in general should do in order to continue to empower them to to work within their communities to actually improve this situation?
1: yeah that's that's a, i think that, that there's so much energy and commitment and knowledge and expertise in communities and um often they are not in a position where they can fully play their role to their capacity where they would normally be able to because there is there are so many barriers and and hurdles that they have to overcome as a practical example funding for example is, mm-hmm. is big so you can then say well there are funding rounds but who has the capacity to um, successfully apply for grants how is the grant program how is the process set up how open is it to those organizations that may not have the capacity to mm-hmm. uh to, to maybe maybe not even find out about those programs maybe we are favoring more established community organizations because they i mean they I'm not saying that shouldn't get any funding, but <laughs> but maybe we underestimate the enormous potential that sort of grassroots organizations have because they never get to that point, and they are doing such an amazing job in many ways without any funding. If if we could, you know, channel that enormous commitment and and power in those organizations, then that would be a, a big step forward. But that requires us to rethink our funding guidelines, our structures, the way universities. Um, for example, get funding. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I think sometimes and often they should be required to really deeply build capacity through partnerships um, with community organizations and learn from those community organizations. So it's a mutual benefit, I think.
0: Absolutely, I think we we need to stop. Um, I mean, we we need to be absolutely aware of the experiences that they're having and the mechanisms that need to be in place in order to change that systemic. Uh, issues that exist within society, that for for reporting and then for actually responding to them, but at the same time we can't keep thinking that every minority community are simply victims. They yeah. are, in actual fact, the power base in which yeah. we can uh, utilize in order to change the um, the, the level of discrimination that is occurring. And and certainly that empowerment is incredibly important. Um, but then at the same time, that sounds like a very patronizing conversation coming from me as as a white female as well. Um, also, that that sense that we need to empower them. In actual fact, we simply need to get out of the way and allow them to stand up and do what they believe needs to be done.
1: I mean, I, I, I remember that the very first project that we did in this space, we called that empowerment. And I feel embarrassed in retrospect that i'm not the charge of empowerment <laughs> so, so i would never ever do that again i learned my lesson but it was interesting that at the end of the project quite a few people from the community who had been working with us they said to us i think one quote was uh, now the power has been put in our hands so there was from the community perspective an assessment that it was actually empowering and that's the most beautiful thing you want to see at uh, the end
0: absolutely i think we all I just want to church. see the power in the hands of the people that can make change so absolutely mario it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you so much for spending this time with us
2: thank
0: um, you <clears throat> yes just terrific uh, incredibly important and very big and complex subject but uh, but as always you managed to make it very understandable so very much appreciate that thank you wow we it's delightful to have you here for our end of podcast chat You've uh, you recently joined the Institute to work with us on uh, a whole variety of different sorts of research that we do. But you were there to listen to the um, interview with Mario. What did you think?
2: I think he made some really interesting points, especially, I think, for our own research practices here at the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Um for example, in relation to how we interpret and represent the data that we do gather, for example, through the Mapping Social Cohesion Survey series.
0: Okay, <laughs> um, that um, that that took me off in a different direction. I wasn't necessarily expecting, <laughs> but that that's it certainly does um, raise some issues because we have been mapping discrimination for some time, and uh, and quite apart from that, this the. The statistics that he referred to, which was that sense of um, uh, that people are now more aware that racism is an issue in Australia than they have been before over the last couple of years. Um, That's a really important finding and I think one that gives you a a degree of confidence that perhaps some change can continue to be made.
2: Yeah, most definitely. And I think what will be interesting to see how These views evolve not just over time, but also across different groups in the population. So whether there's differences in how aware certain people are in comparison to others um, and and how that, I guess, correlates with sociodemographic characteristics and how that may vary through different parts of Australia as well. So I think there's a a lot of implications for us in terms of how we look at the data and, and, and how we write about it.
0: Absolutely. It is um, really interesting, though, to to understand how important it is to work at the local community level, um, because that's where the individuals are that are having these experiences. And that's where they would hope to find some responses to the degree of that experience. So um, it is really important to not only look at a population wide um, set of statistics, but also to stay in touch with the local communities to know what their experiences are.
2: Most definitely, and I think when we look at the, the sort of community level is very important, as we've heard from Mario, to to listen to what they have to say, to listen to the change that they want to see, and then enabling them to sort of drive that change to yeah. the extent that they um, that they can, that they have the capacity to do that, and really give them the means well, to to do the best they can.
0: Absolutely. And and I think understanding the importance of language, which is something that comes up with us time and time again, uh, that it isn't necessarily for white people to give power to um, those that might be victims of discrimination. It's actually more about uh, a whole community effort and how we all create change so that it is a more respectful and inclusive environment. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Reuben for spending some time with me it's uh, it's great to catch up at the end of such a very um, heavy type of conversation so thank you very much
2: Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute This podcast is produced by me Faisal Farah and with audio visual recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions Research for each episode is provided by Agalos macdu and Matthew Skidmore. The original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanloninstitute.org.au.